The question, what are beings, explains beings by that which is most common to them. This is another big theme in this and other writings. Starting from beings, it surpasses beings toward being with an I or beingness. It's metaphysics because it starts from beings, phusis, and surpasses them. That's the meta in the direction of that which explains them or is common to them or is their... Um, empowers them or whatever the case might be. So starting from physics, from phusis, from beings, we pass beyond beings to their ground being with an eye or their beingness. That's metaphysics. But what we need to do is overcome this ontological difference between beings and being with an eye. He calls that ontological difference and says we can't get into conceptual thinking. We can't get into another beginning in that, in the territory demarcated by the ontological difference. Rather, we need to leap into belonging to the truth of being with a why. That question, the question of being with a why, does not begin with an orientation toward beings. It is not based on surpassing beings in the direction of what's most common to them or what explains them, Heidegger says. As he puts it in the following chapter on the leap, in Western metaphysics, which basically, again, is a history of philosophy up until him, pretty much, in Western metaphysics, being is, quote, in service to beings, whether as their cause or as that which explains them, and whether we're talking about religious or secular metaphysics. Being is in the service of beings. In the other beginning, though, beings are for the sake of the truth of being with a Y. And as he puts it on page 181, only from there do beings as such receive their truth. So you don't need to fully understand what that means yet, as long as we can get this implied shift. Beings are no longer the priority. Being with a Y is. Being, with an I, metaphysical being, is not for the sake of beings. Rather, beings are for the sake of being with a Y. You see? And you'll sometimes see that when he's talking about being in the metaphysical sense, not in the inceptual sense, he will say beingness as that which is most common to beings. So just you have to be on the lookout for that when he does it. And that explains why, as we said, I think, last session, the title, the general, um, the general title for metaphysics is beingness and thinking as representation, whereas the title of at least the transition to conceptual thinking is being in time. So he says that is two completely different understandings, beingness and thinking as representation versus his notion of being and being in time and thinking as something other than representation. He makes that point just so you have the proof texts on the bottom of page 143 and on 154, for instance. He tells you these are the essential titles that name metaphysics and the transition away from metaphysics. I would like to add that this reorientation from beings to the truth of being, with a Y, is not a mere quote-unquote revaluation of all values, to use the Nietzschean phrase, because as Heidegger writes on page 145, what is needed now is the great inversion one beyond all revaluation of values. And in this inversion, beings are no longer grounded on the human being as they are in modern thought, where reason provides the guideline for the objectivity of objects. But rather, he writes, humanness, what it is to be human, is grounded on being with a why. There's a lot that's implied in this reorientation toward being, which is the crux of conceptual thinking. Let me just get off the notes here for a second. One of the things that he's talking about here is that in modern 
philosophy, modern metaphysics in modernity, the beingness of beings is a function of reasons law giving to the world. Beings are as a function of the human being. We want to shift that emphasis. The human being is as a function of being with a Y, you see? So now section 110 on page 163. Here he's talking about, and I'm going to be saying the idea, and he means here not the modern sense of like, I had a great idea, but he means very specifically the idea in the sense of the ideas in Plato. Ideas like we have in the cave allegories I'll be saying shortly. And the idea in the platonic sense, he says, means the shining forth of a being in the aspect that it presents to a gaze. And now I want to try to make that strange, I think, fair to say strange formulation more comprehensible. What is a thing for us normally, as it were, automatically? Like when you look at something, if you look at the things around you, you know, what are they for you? And I'm going to just try to generate this, this insight here. So suppose I say, here's my cup or here's my pen or whatever the case is, right? And then I go a little further and ask the question, what am I really seeing? So here's my coffee cup. What am I really seeing though? Naively, I would say it's my cup, you know, my non-philosophical wife, that would be the end of the conversation. It's just my cup of coffee that we don't need to go into the details. But if we ask just scratch beneath the surface, right? Am I really seeing the cup? No, I think by default, as modern uh, as as moderns, we would say, you know, because we're scientific enough to say this, that what we're seeing are certain reflections that give us the impression of what we call the cup or whatever it is that we happen to be looking at. We know we're not seeing the cup itself. We're somehow seeing a combination of sense impressions that are impinging upon our nervous system in such a way that we have a representation of the cup in our consciousness. If we were to push the question, right? We may have some doubts about the real constitution of the perceived thing since we don't seem to have any direct access to its reality, but only to our representation of it. That basic attitude that beings are for us as represented objects, which is implicit for Heidegger in the experience of being a modern and explicit in the modern philosophies, is not primary for the ancient Greek way of encountering being according to Heidegger. So there, you're not representing beings as objects in consciousness. So that would be the modern experience, as a, again, when you scratch beneath the surface of the naive experience, you'd, you'd have the experience of a represented construction in consciousness. Rather, you're looking at the shining forth, to use his terminology here, of the way that something, quote, gives itself out to be and makes of itself that in which something is set back and thus is the being it is from 163. Even if that's not totally comprehensible, the basic idea is that it's a different experience of what beings are that stands at the basis of later transformations culminating in beings as represented objects. Let me just try to restate that again off the notes. So if we pay attention to what the word idea means in, in Plato's philosophy, Heidegger says, we'll see that it's a specific way of the self-showing of beings to us. But a transformation of that basic understanding has culminated in the, in the view that beings are just objects represented in consciousness. So there's a dependency between the modern notion of the thing as a represented object in consciousness and the original pre-modern 
non-representational notion of the being as that which shows itself forth in a look or shines forth in a look. They're distinct. They're related because one leads to the other. And Heidegger shortly is going to say what the motor is in a way that has the Platonic version culminate in the modern version of the representability of beings. But he wants to say they're dis it's, distinct, it's a distinct view of what beings are that sets off the metaphysical process, so to speak. That's what he's talking about in um, point number one on that list. And the idea in the Platonic sense also has the sense, this is point two on the list now, of being the one form, quote unquote, to use a potentially familiar term, the Platonic forms, the one form to which the many instances of something are referred back. So let me give a simple example. There are many bicycles, but there's one idea of the bicycle which unifies the many instances or the variety of examples. Whenever he's asking in his dialogues, like in a, in a typical understanding of Plato, he's asking his, his interlocutor, you know, what is this or that? What is justice? What is beauty? The interlocutor will give an example of something. He'll, he'll give an example of a beautiful thing. And Socrates will say, well, what is that thing by virtue of which beautiful things are called beautiful? What's the one thing that makes the characteristic of being beautiful common among the beautiful things, you see? So in other words, the idea has this unifying function. It unifies the many instances into their, they participate or they share in the characteristic of the idea. It unifies what's common among them, okay? And what he says is that this understanding of the idea, in Plato's sense, the idea as unifying stands at the basis, it's the original version, so to speak, of the interpretation of being as beingness, as that which is most common and most essential for beings to be what they are. This unification is a unification of the beings, so that as Heidegger sees it, the idea, in the Greek sense, is as it were derivative from the manifoldness of the beings, which it's meant to unify and to explain. This is another key point for him. So it, it has a unifying function, the idea of the beautiful. It unifies all of the cases of that which is beautiful by giving us an explanation of that by virtue of which they're beautiful. But because it's trying to explain what makes them all beautiful, he's saying that means that it is based primarily on the beings. And then trying to explain their commonality, we go up to this unifying function of the idea. In other words, it has a structural similarity to beingness as that which is most common to beings. So we ask, what is it that makes something beautiful? Well, the idea of beauty. Okay, but what is it which makes something be at all? Beingness. So you see the sim structural similarity there. And the problem is that it's not getting us to the truth of being with a Y. It's still the ontological difference. It's sort of a prefiguration or it shares this structural similarity of beingness as an explanation for beings. It's still derivative from beings, which it is meant to unify and to explain. That's what he's saying in point two. So he's trying to find the, the original sources, so to speak, or some, real, some evidence at the beginning of metaphysics for these tendencies that later play themselves out in a variety of other formulations. Now, I think that the crucial point from my perspective is the one in point number five on the list. And this I would like now to take a shot at explaining. For context, there's no way of thinking about the importance of the ideas in Plato I mean, ultimately, for our purposes here, without thinking about the cave allegory. The cave allegory is an important locus for the presentation of the ideas in Plato. 
the upshot of the cave allegory, if you remember, is that initially we're looking at shadows on the wall, abstracting from all of the context of the dialogue itself. Initially, we're looking at shadows on the wall, but eventually it's possible to exit the cave and to see the most beingful beings, the beings that actually are and are not merely semblances or shadows. So the way that he says it is, the shadows, they're not nothing, they're something, but they're a lesser degree of being than the actual things that you see outside of the cave. So when the prisoner gets outside of the cave, initially he sees like the reflection of a tree in the water. So that's more real than the shadow of a tree on the wall. This is something that Heidegger makes a lot of in his On the Essence of Truth, that you have here degrees of being implied in the cave allegory. So um, we begin to... Uh, um, acclimatize or acclimate or whatever the word is, our intellectual perception to a higher degree of beingness as we make our way out of the cave. And eventually we can go from looking at the reflections of the, you know, of the trees in the water to the trees themselves, then to the stars in the sky. And ultimately in the peak of this vision, what we see outside of the cave, as it's discussed in the allegory, really the capstone or the peak is the vision of the sun which is called the idea of the good. And now the crucial thing that Heidegger is discussing in this passage is that the sun is said there in the dialogue to be, quote, beyond being. There's a Greek phrase in, in this point number five, epikenas tes usias. That's what it is, beyond being, the beyond being. Now, if you think about it, that could be an indication of the fundamental concealment that Heidegger is talking to us about. The beyond could mean the concealed the beyond could be indicating the concealment. Because if we think of being with the metaphor of light, what is beyond being is beyond the light, or it has not come to light. So this notion of the beyond being in the cave allegory is an important place for Heidegger to think about what happened with concealment in Plato's thought. You see, he tells us what he thinks about that in point five of this section 110. Since being is thought of by way of the idea, which is itself derivative, as we just discussed under point two, from the primacy of beings, then all of this thinking cannot, Heidegger says on page 164, detach itself from beings and strike up against being with a Y itself. Thinking being through the idea, and therefore as derivative from beings, is not giving us access to being with a Y. But what that means is that the presentiment or whatever we should call it here of the concealment through the figure of beyond being therefore will be distorted and that's what i want to um, that's what i want to address here so plato is caught up in the distinction between beings and their beingness which is what's reflected by the greek term idea in heidegger's telling so even when he does reach the limit of that distinction and speak of the beyond being the epikena tesousias he thinks about it in relation, Heidegger says, to human life, namely as the good in the sense that it's a condition for life, quote unquote. Now, I want to leave aside the question whether his reading is correct, because it may be disputable, for us just to focus on what he's saying. Plato interprets the beyond being at the limit of the distinction between beings and their beingness in terms of beings and their beingness. He hits the limit, but he interprets the limit in terms of the very 
limit that he's reached, so to speak. Hence, in terms of the good, the useful for life. And in later modifications in the history of philosophy, this sets the groundwork for the interpretation of the beyond being as values or ideals, which are therefore ultimately platonic or metaphysical, because they too reach the limit of the distinction between beings and being, but they interpret that limit in terms of what constrains them. At the same time, because the beyond being, this is still Heidegger in point five, because the beyond being is somehow also the origin of beings, and hence still thought in relation to beings primarily as their origin, and because it is the measure of human happiness, because it's thought in such relationship to human happiness, it takes on, he says, the character of the divine. This is another important fact. Heidegger says, therefore, that the question of beings, which leads to beingness and to the limit indicated by this notion of the beyond being, interpreted metaphysically, is necessarily theology, theology. It's necessarily um, theological. That's on page 154. And the reason I want to bring this out clearly is because that gives us the basis, somewhat, for the argumentation implied earlier in the book, which I mentioned often in our first few sessions, Heidegger's view that we need to overcome not only the various obvious forms of nihilism or of metaphysics or of machination, but also the Christian and other religious alternatives or options in the culture wars. You might think that like the religious response to nihilism is a legitimate one because nihilism says that there's not, let's say nothing, um, nothing meaningful or, you know, it posits to nothing. Whereas the theological view says, well, we have an answer to that, right? We have a theology that's going to give us a standard here. But the problem, according to Heidegger's telling in, the, in this very rich section 110, is that both the secular and the theological ontologies share this is their matrix. They share this common platonic root. He seems genuinely to think that this, what's implied in this passage is the seed for all of what happens later, whether it's secular or religious, whether it's a value Platonism or whether it's the Christian Platonism for the people. As he puts it, what happens in Plato's thinking when it reaches the limit of the ontological difference between beings and being as beingness through the figure of the beyond being as the good, okay, that's a statement. The beyond being is the good. He calls it the good. It's the idea of the good, the agathon. It's the good is beyond being, but it's interpreted metaphysically. And what's going on in all of this, what, ha what happens in this moment of thought, this destining, this destinal world historical moment of thought, being historical moment of thought, is, as he puts it on page 165 near the bottom, the prototype for all worldviews and ideologies, for all talk of culture and ideals. Heidegger traces the later shifts of this Platonism all the way through to German idealism and Hegel, who stands opposite Plato at the end of the first history of philosophy as its greatest systematizer, alongside Nietzsche, the greatest anti-systematizer. Page 171 will give you a nice summary statement connecting Platonism to Nietzscheanism. And between these two bookends, the whole episode called Metaphysics. Um, but again, just to remind you that we don't have here a catalog of errors, but rather as he puts it on 172, signs of, quoting now, the deepest mystery of the current history of Western humanity. What we're left with when he traces back 
the ontological difference that characterizes modernity to its root really in this, especially here in this cave allegory, when we run up against the beyond being, but interpret it metaphysically, what we're left with is what he calls a historical decision of the greatest proportions, namely the possibility of overcoming Platonism. This is 173 and uh, 172, 173. We can look at what was experienced in the first beginning, but overlooked in the Platonic interpretation. So the beyond being indicates something more than Plato was able to make of it. That's an important point for Heidegger. We can recover what Plato failed to raise adequately as a question. And indeed, we must do that if we want to transition from metaphysics to conceptual thinking. So as Heidegger writes on page 172, quoting now, in order to create a readiness for the leap into Dasein, we thus face the unavoidable task of initiating and overcoming of Platonism through a more original knowledge of, his, of its essence, end quote. So now I have in my notes that I'd like to turn to the next chapter on the leap to see more about how Heidegger talks about the overcoming of metaphysics that happens when we're underway toward the other beginning. But I want to stop and give you a chance, as usual, to bring up any questions and points. And even before then, I want to uh, bring something out in connection with what we've been saying, that this argument or notion that the ideas in Plato configure the context for the future development of metaphysics even in the language of values, in the language of ideals, in the language of culture, and in the language of theology, he summarizes all of that by saying, as I read to you, that you have there the prototype for all worldviews. I want to just read that, and you'll see why in a minute. Yeah, the prototype for all worldviews and ideologies. And in connection with that section and with this argument, I think that it is worth for the record, revisiting this very rich and vital section that I don't actually think we discussed since this is an introduction and we can't discuss every vital section in the book, but I want to point it out to you for the record. This begins at the bottom of page 30 and it's called Philosophy and Worldview. And this is very important because everything that he calls metaphysics falls into this notion of a worldview and what's implied by a worldview is the metaphysics that he's just discussed in section 110. In other words, we can ask ourselves, what must be true for us to see being and questioning in a way that closes off access to being with a why? And that closing off, he distinguishes from philosophy, which is not a closing off right? Philosophy, conceptual philosophy in the way that he discusses it, especially in this first section called The Prospect, is about a self-surpassing yes saying to the compelling sovereignty of the concealed. In other words, it's anything but a closing off. It's an opening up. The whole project of conceptual thinking depends on an opening ourselves up to the truth of being through questioning, which means that whatever closes that off has to be called something other than philosophy. And everything in the culture wars and everything he thinks primarily that, it, that reflects the abandonment by being is a closing off. And therefore, this section 14 that begins on the bottom of page 30 called Philosophy and Worldview, which goes until, um, the, until just about the end of page 34, I recommend to you very strongly because 
he demarcates philosophy from worldview in a way that could help us on the way to overcoming Platonism if we agree with him that Platonism ultimately is the prototype of worldview. You see? So I think those two sections should be read uh, with an eye to one another. This is a very good question, a very important point. He does not mean care in an ethical or theological way. He means care in a structural, existential way. It's a structural uh, feature of the being that we are. And only because we are existentially care can there be the ethical or theological instantiation of that structural feature. But now I need to tell you what the structural feature is. So there's something that characterizes the type of being that we are, which is not ethical or theological, but which is a precondition or a condition of possibility for the ethical and theological modes of expressing ourselves as care. So what he says in being and time, here you'll see, this is good to know because you'll be able to see some differences in formulation. So here he says that care means we are seeking the truth of being, stewarding and preserving that which is not primarily ethical or theological, but rather philosophical and inceptual. We seek, then in, in our seeking, we make ourselves open to grounding. In our grounding, we shelter. And in our authentic existence, we preserve what we've sheltered that's been granted in the truth of being as a function of our seeking. In being in time, he says it slightly differently. There, he has this formulation, which is basically, I might as well take a minute to try to articulate this but really important that it is not primarily ethical or theological, but rather existential or structural. He says, okay, who are we? We are Dasein. Slightly different from the contributions, because in the contributions, Dasein is something that, as it were, we need to become in the leap. In being in time, he still takes it as the most basic statement about who the being that we are. Who we are is Dasein. Okay, what's the preliminary meaning of Dasein? It's hyphenated being in the world, in der Weltsein. This is where he starts in being in time. So we are always already in a world in a specific way. We are, here's, a, here's one way of being in. This dot is in this circle. But Dasein, as being in the world, is not the, is not the dot in the circle. It is world always already. World is a constitutive factor of what we are. We're not in the world like water in a cup or like your shoes in the closet or whatever. World is an existential structural feature of who you are. You couldn't draw a Dasein diagrammatically, so to speak, without world being with it or at, you see, this is why this shift in perspective that you are the open space, you are the there, you are the house, so to speak. Okay, so that's the starting point. And how do we get from this to care? Well, very simply, he says that if you elaborate this picture that Dasein is being in the world, eventually you see a few things. You see that, okay, now let's just say that this is Dasein and now this is like my cup of coffee or the things in the world. So I am being in the world as an existential structure and there are things in the world. Some of the things that I encounter in the world that I am are other Daseins. So I encounter things, I encounter other Daseins. This again is me. And... I am existentially not the cause of my own existence. He calls that being thrown. So I'm not the ground of my own existence. And also I exist in projecting possibilities. So this is a big story, but when he lays in poss possibilities, there are a 
now phenomenon, you project them as modes of being now, they're few, they have a future orientation or a future dimension, but you are your possibilities now. So when Heidegger goes through um, all of these existential structural features, he has the past existential aspect of ourselves, namely that we're thrown. We did not lay the ground of our own existence. He has our, futural, our, our futurality, so to speak, which is that we are a projecting forward and ultimately a being towards death. And he has our present uh, uh, existential temporality, which is that we're always already being in the world with beings encountered and with uh, encountering other Daseins. And this, weirdly enough, he hyphenates in this very long, like two sentence passage. And he says, that is the technical existential definition of care. So let me repeat. The technical existential definition of care is that we are the kind of being that is always already in a world encountering beings and other Daseins and being toward our death in projecting possibilities. So there's nothing there that's ethical. There's nothing there that's theological. It's all structural existential. And he wants to say, we are that. And that identifies our various modes of temporality. He takes over that existential analysis in contributions to philosophy of the event, but he adds this dimension of the truth of being with a why. And ultimately, we're seeking into the truth of being with a why and in here sheltering and preserving it in our existence, which spans itself out temporally into a past, future, and present that are all there with us now in a specific sort of way. The key thing is it's a misleading term initially because you might think care is like, you know, bleeding heart, liberal, I really care, but that's not what he means. But the possibility of caring in those modified senses is premised on this structural configuration. In the language of being in time, we are that structure of care and we can either be it knowingly where we have appropriated understandingly our structure. In other words, where we have become authentic, self-appropriated self-understanding, you see? Where we are clear about our existential configuration and therefore can have as a possibility of being being in the truth and therefore be open to the truth of being uh, and this whole, all of this uh, that we're talking about inceptually. Or on the opposite end, authentic existence, we can be inauthentically unaware of our genuine existential structure, which is what he says we are always and for the most part. And therefore, what we're most familiar with is various distorted or second and third and fourth hand implementations of this structure. So all of the ethical, all of the theological, all of the sociological, and all of the other modes of care or being in the world as care can be inauthentic if they're not based on a proper understanding that this is who we are. Because once we see that this is who we are, then we can freely choose the possibilities that we adopt for ourselves, the foremost of which would be ultimately the possibility of inquiring into the truth of being itself.